Let me invite you to take your Bible this morning and uh, make your way to the book of Matthew chapter number 21. Matthew chapter number 21. As we know, this is uh, what many call Passion Week or Holy Week, and uh, this is the Sunday before Easter. And so I want to just take today and Wednesday and next Sunday to focus our hearts upon uh, what happened this week of the year many, many years ago in the life of Christ, uh, because that is uh, the week in which we find our redemption was made secure and complete. And so I want us to have hearts that uh, reflect on that, focus on that, meditate upon that through this week. And so today we're going to be looking at the triumphal entry of Christ, the triumphal entry of Christ from Matthew chapter number 21. And I'm going to read verse 1 down through verse number 11. And I pray that as we look at this uh, particular passage and this event that happened, uh, that we will be blessed by that and encouraged to think about uh, what Christ went through throughout this coming week to, to accomplish our redemption. Notice Matthew 21 and verse 1 through 11. The Bible says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and, and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. In this text, we find the triumphal entry of Christ. It's one that uh, I always enjoy looking at and studying together. But when we think about this time of year, you know, nearly everyone has a day or event that they look forward to every year. I bet you can't guess what uh, the favorite day of my children is every year. You might say Christmas, that's probably one of them, but most certainly it's their birthday, right? If you're a kid, you remember counting the days, trying to figure out how long do I got till my birthday. David, on his last birthday, he said, I wish my birthday could be every day. And uh, I informed him that if your birthday was every day, it wouldn't be really special, and uh, we'd have a yard sale every week, okay? Uh, so there's a reason that you don't have a birthday every day. But when it comes to uh, getting older, especially as a pastor, I don't really care so much about birthdays, but the day of the year that I look forward to is Easter. I look forward to worshiping and celebrating with the people of God the resurrection of Christ, uh, and really all that happens through uh, Passion Week that leads up to Uh, the resurrection of Christ, not like a birth-eternal life, eternal life in Jesus, in in our Lord. 
Um, This is the time of year in which Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead. This is the week uh, of Easter that leads us up to Easter Sunday and and uh, that particular that the, 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 pray for me, my tongue's getting tied. Right, the particular day that starts out this week is today, which many call Palm Sunday, and it's a reference to this entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem, this particular event. Now, as we approach Easter next Sunday, we're looking forward to celebrating the resurrection together. Because that's what Easter is truly all about. That's where our minds and hearts ought to be. But one week before Easter Sunday, no one ever would have thought, probably, that Jesus was about to be gruesomely put to death in just a few days. In just a few days, as you read this passage, many people would have thought, there's no way, this this Jesus is the one we've been looking for. As we read the Gospels, we know that there's coming an appointed time for Jesus to die. And Jesus knew that time had come. In fact, as you read through the Gospels, you're going to find that Jesus at this particular point has set His face steadfastly on going to Jerusalem. And Jesus knows that in going to Jerusalem this time, He's been there many times, but this time, this is going to be the time in which He's going to die. He's going to die. His physical life is going to come to an end. You say, well, if he knew that he was going to die, going to the city at this point in time, why would he go? Because this is the mission for which he came into the world. Jesus did not come into the world to live a long, prosperous life. He came into the world for one central purpose. That is to give his life in death for his people. But before he would do that, here we find him approaching Jerusalem, coming up the Mount of Olives, and he's going to go over the Mount of Olives, and we find him greatly received by the people, greatly received by Jerusalem. They they receive him as the Messiah of God, the Christ, the Anointed One, the One that God had promised. They praise him and adore him. It's a marvelous account to consider for us. And you'll find that this particular event Known as the triumphal entry, it's recorded in all four of your Gospels, all four of the Gospel accounts. You find it here in Matthew, you find it in Mark 11, Luke 19, and John chapter 12. I'd encourage you to go read those and even compare and contrast them. But I want to point out just a few things from the text here today. You'll find them here in our notes, and I pray that we can glean some things that would encourage us, cause us to rejoice, but also some points of application for us in our Christian life. Notice with me, number one, we see very plainly the procession of the Messiah. The procession of the Messiah. This whole procession that that Jesus follows coming into the city. And I want to point out a couple things about this procession. The first thing I want to point out to you is that this procession was a fulfillment of prophecy. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. Now, we understand this, that everything Jesus was doing throughout His ministry had a purpose to it. In fact, everything that God does or allows has a purpose to it. You see, the life and ministry of Jesus were not some random narrative of uh, some Jewish man who had gained a lot of attention. The life of Jesus is intentional in every little detail. Every little detail is intentional. 
is according to the purpose of God. His life from his conception to his ministry to his crucifixion to his resurrection and his ascension, all of it was intentional and with purpose. Because all that happens in his life reveals to us that Jesus was not just another Jewish man. He is indeed the God He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Savior of the world. He is the Son of God. He is God in human flesh, come to bring salvation to humanity. Now, what is one way in which we know for sure that Jesus, He is the One? How do we know that Jesus is the One, the Savior, the One that was to come? Well, the answer to that is prophecy. Prophecy fulfilled. You say, well, what is prophecy? Well, I like to say it this way, that prophecy is history written in advance. History written in advance. Now, we tend to only know history by what's in the past, right? I enjoy history. I like watching documentaries about uh, past events and Uh, Wars that happened and sports teams that triumphed and all sorts of different things. Reading books about it, it's, it's an interesting thing to read about and know history. But prophecy is history already settled before it ever happens. It's already settled before it ever happens. You say, well, how can such a thing be? How can history be settled before it ever happens? Because history is God's plan from beginning to end. History, as some might call it, is his story. That spells out history. History is his story. You see, the eternal, omnipotent, all-wise God who dwells outside of time and yet transcends time has set specific events in time revealing that he is the one in control of all of history. He's the one in control of all of time, on into eternity. I love what the Lord said through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. He says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And watch this, church. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I love that passage. That gives me great comfort. Can you imagine how discomforting it would be if there was no sovereign God in control of this world? I praise God for that. As Spurgeon said, it's the pillow upon which he rests his head at night, especially going through a trial, knowing that God is the sovereign over all things. But his sovereignty not only plays into all of history, but specifically we see it revealed in the details about the prophecies of Jesus. As you read through your Old Testament, you're going to find prophecy after prophecy that was written hundreds of years about Je- before Jesus, all about Jesus. In fact, you're going to find there is somewhat around 350 specific detailed prophecies penned in the Old Testament, fulfilled all in one person, Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus told his critics who challenged him, who didn't believe he was the Christ, he told them in John 5, 39, 
You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. You see, the Old Testament, the, the, the Jews of his day, they read the scriptures, read the scriptures, read the scriptures. But they were blind to seeing the reality that Jesus is in the midst of those scriptures. Jesus, he says they bear witness about me. And here in this great triumphal entry, we see one of the many prophecies about Christ fulfilled. Notice in our text as we come to verse 1 that Jesus drew near to Jerusalem. And as he drew near to Jerusalem in verse 2 through 3, he sent two disciples to do something very specific. Go to the next village and you're going to find this donkey and a colt tied and I want you to bring them to me. Go get them. Say, well, why did Jesus have his disciples do this? It seemed kind of like a strange command. Why do this, Jesus, at this time? Well, what does Matthew tell us in verse 4? What does Matthew say? He says here in verse 4, This took place to what? To fulfill. To fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. You'll find that all through Matthew as he quotes Old Testament scriptures. This was done to fulfill. This was done that it might be fulfilled. And so the prophet of old had written and spoken about this event in which Jesus would one day fulfill. Now, do you think that Jesus knew the Old Testament scriptures about himself? Absolutely he did. Absolutely he did. He's God, number one, but number two, he he read and studied the, the Old Testament. He knew it better than anybody else did, being the author of it especially. Now, Matthew quotes in verse 5 the prophecy that we read in Zechariah 9 and verse 9. I'm going to read Zechariah 9 and verse 9 to you. The prophet, many years before this event we're reading about, wrote and said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, do you see what this scripture predicts hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born? The people of Jerusalem will rejoice greatly. Why will they rejoice greatly? Because your king is coming to you. What do we see about this king? We see that he is righteous and having salvation. And how would this king appear? He would be humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, this foal of a donkey. Now, this may seem a little bit odd because kings didn't ride donkeys. They rode horses. They had, they had a, a, a more eloquent way about them. But this shows the meekness and humility of Jesus as he enters into the city. And what we see is that this great truth unfolds throughout this passage. That, note, that brings me to secondly, not only do we see that it was a, a fulfillment of prophecy, this procession, but notice also that it was a manifestation of praise. It's a manifestation of praise to King Jesus. Now, Matthew summarizes in verse 6 through 7 what Jesus told them to do in verse 2 through 3. And now when, when Jesus is now ready, he, he's sitting on this, this donkey and, and he's, he's beginning this journey to Jerusalem over the Mount of Olives and then down the descent to the Mount, of the Mount of Olives upwards to Jerusalem. And what happens as he rides this path? What happens as he's, he's with his disciples and he's riding uh, on this 
on this donkey. Notice what happens in verse 8. We see that there is a crowd or a very great multitude of people that join in on this. You understand this is no small gathering. This isn't just Jesus and the twelve anymore. This is a large crowd that has come to welcome Jesus into the city. Now, news of his arrival had spread. They've come to welcome him as he enters Jerusalem. And as he's coming down the Mount of Olives, we find some interesting things taking place that I think we'll understand culturally from the Scriptures too. Notice that they begin to spread their cloaks on the road. Spread their cloaks on the road. Yeah, just picture this scene. Jesus riding on this donkey, and instead of the donkey just, you know, walking a dirt path, they're, they're taking their coats off and laying their coats over where Jesus is going to ride. So why are, we, why are they doing that? I mean, we don't do that today, do we? It maybe seem a little odd to us. You see, this in that day was an act of homage, a way of recognizing someone's royalty, a way of submitting to Jesus as the king. This was an ancient way of recognizing that. We see a little bit of an example in this in the Old Testament with Jehu, Jehu in the Old Testament. 2 Kings 9.13 Then in haste every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So, so they're laying out their garments where he's going to walk. And they did this with Jehu in the past. This was a, a, an ancient practice. And so the disciples set that trend and everybody else joins in on it, making the point that the man on this, this, this cult, he's worthy of this. He's, he is the king. Now notice also what they do. The Bible says they cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now John's Gospel will tell you that they are palm branches from palm trees. There's a reason this is called Palm Sunday. Because of the palm branches they spread in the way. They cut these branches and they put them on the road. Why are they doing this? We don't see that kind of thing today either. Well, I'll give you a little information. These branches, the palm branches, they symbolized Jewish nationalism and victory. They were connected with many prominent Jewish victories throughout their history. They were connected with the Feast of Tabernacles. Palm motives are very custom and very, very regular among uh, the Jewish people. And so by doing this, it's, all, it's another way of symbolizing that Jesus has come to bring us victory. He's come to bring us victory. And so as, as Jesus rides down the Mount of Olives towards Jerusalem on this donkey, Notice what happens next in our passage, in our text. Down in verse 9. The people that were before him, the people that were behind him, so you see this great crowd, they start shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! Now, all of this is significant, church, because this shows us what they're seeing Jesus as. You you notice, firstly, that they call him the son of David. The son of David. Now, why is this significant? Why is the son of David significant? The expression, the son of David, is a recognition of Jesus' kingly lineage. You read Matthew chapter 1, and you'll find that very plainly, his kingly lineage. They are recognizing Jesus as the promised king 
that God said would come through the line of David who would be the king. Not just another king, but the king. Now, understand that this is a foundational pillar for the expectation of the Jews. You understand they're still looking for this Messiah, God? He already came and went. But Jews today have a hatred for Jesus. They do not accept Him as their king. So much so that there are some even right now trying to implement a law that makes it illegal to talk about the gospel in Israel. So much that if you talk about the gospel in Israel, you can be put in prison. Now, I don't know if that will go through, but that shows you their heart towards Jesus. They don't see Him as their king. But they are looking for this king that that God had promised would come through the line of David. We find several references to this prophecy in the Old Testament. But Jeremiah 23, 5 is one in particular. Notice that God says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. That's what they're looking for. That's what they in this text think Jesus is. Which leads to what else they're saying about him. Notice what their praise is. They recognize him as the son of David, but notice that little word they repeat. Hosanna! Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the, to, to the highest, in the highest. What's this mean? What's the word Hosanna mean? Well, as I study and research this and look this up, the word Hosanna, it is both an expression of praise, but it is also a prayer. It's a liturgical word used in Judaism and in Christianity in some circles, and it means save, we pray. Save, we pray. One commentator states that the Hosanna ritual combines the ideas of praising realized victories over the nations and sympathetic prayers for salvation. So, since they think Jesus is this promised king coming into Jerusalem, they're crying out to their king, Save, oh, we pray. Save us, oh, we pray. They expect him to save them. By, their, by his rule and by his reign, by his authority. Now, how can they be so sure Jesus could even do such a thing? What makes them confident that he has the power to do such a thing? Well, we read in a parallel passage in Luke 19, 37. The Bible says, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. For all the mighty works they had seen. You understand, many in this crowd saw Jesus not too long ago call Lazarus out of the, de- out of the tomb. They saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And so many more had been partakers of all the other miracles that he had done. Feeding the 5,000. Healing paralyzed people and blind people. Seeing these things. They know that Jesus has the power that only the true Messiah and Christ could have. And so they expect Jesus, by His power, to save them and to deliver them. But here's where this all gets technical. What did they expect Jesus to save them from? 
their sin or their suffering. Their suffering, not their sin. This is the turning point, friend. This is why in a few days, Jesus is going to be crucified and not enthroned on a throne in Jerusalem. They sought to be saved from their suffering under the rule of the Romans who were over them. The Romans ruled over the Jews at this time. And so they're thinking, oh, finally, our Jewish king is here and he'll liberate us from these heathens ruling over us. They wanted a national salvation from Rome, not a spiritual salvation from their sins. But what did Jesus come to do? Did He come to save a nation or did He come to save a people from their sins? He came to save His people from their sins. He says in Luke 19, For the Son of Man is come to seek and save that which is lost. And friend, did you know that there are many today that have this false idea of Jesus that they want Him for what He can do for them in their life rather than their spiritual need? Many people fall into the same category of these religious Jews. See, despite their misunderstanding of Jesus' mission, I want you just to maybe picture this scene, that day. How majestic this procession must have been to see Jesus coming down the Mount of Olives, down through the Kidron Valley, and on up into Jerusalem. I've walked this path in Jerusalem, in Israel, and, and it kind of helps you kind of see it. You can visualize it. This, because you have the Mount of Olives on one side, the Kidron Valley, and then Jerusalem on the other side that's elevated, and you can see all around what's happening on this mountainside. This would have been stirring throughout the city as we read that the whole city is, is stirred by this. But that doesn't include everyone. Notice with me number two in our notes this morning as we look at this overall event. We see the procession of the Messiah, but now we see the prejudice against the Messiah. There's a prejudice against him. And it's by a specific group of people. They're called Pharisees. They were the religious leaders of that day. And so notice the request of the Pharisees. The request of the Pharisees. I love how this, this interaction here. While the crowds are ushering this praise that Jesus is the king and he's going to deliver us, there's this group who's actually pretty angry and troubled by all this. And it was their religious leaders. And we look at Luke chapter 19 to parallel this, all right? You have to look at Luke's account because Matthew does not record this particular portion. But go with to Luke's account for a moment. If you look at Luke 19 and you look at verse number 39, And notice this. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Rebuke them. You know what they're telling Jesus? Tell your disciples in the crowd to quit shouting all this. Quit saying all this about you. Because the Pharisees did not believe that Jesus was who he actually was, did they? At least they didn't want that to be true. They didn't see Jesus as the promised son of David. They didn't see Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, by God through the Scriptures. They think Jesus is an imposter. A blasphemous phony who is deceiving the people. Which is actually ironic. 
Because the true blasphemous phonies misleading the people were the Pharisees. Keeping the people trapped in legalistic bondage. Their blindness was truly detrimental. Jesus, when he comes on the scene in his ministry, he totally disrupted their system and their security, their religious pomp and power and prestige that they had. Because multitudes, multitudes, I'm talking thousands of people were infatuated with Jesus, started to follow Jesus, and were flocking to Jesus. They were afraid of this. They're losing their status as the religious leaders. The religious leaders. Them and none other. We see another angle of their reaction in John's account. John 12, 29. I think this is interesting. Notice the scripture says, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. (laughs) That's that's how they feel. Everybody's just, just going after Jesus. Look at what's happening. Look at what's happening. There was nothing they could do to stop this event, and it troubled them. Now, I think, wouldn't it be wonderful if the whole world ran after Jesus from our Christian perspective? Friend, doesn't our world need Jesus? Absolutely. Doesn't our nation need Jesus? Absolutely. But most of the world today is just like the Pharisees, aren't they? They don't run after Jesus. Why? Because their nature is to go the opposite direction. How did the Pharisees react towards Jesus? Well, we find they rejected his message. What was the message of Jesus? He comes and begins his ministry and he begins preaching. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. They rejected that message. They rejected his miracles. How did they reject his miracles? I mean, they can't deny the fact that someone demon-possessed is now cured or someone who couldn't walk is now walking. How'd they get around this? Well, they say, Jesus, you're just doing all this by the power of the devil. Blasphemy. They reject his miracles. They rejected his mission, which was to seek and save the lost, those who were unrighteous. This is seen in their hatred of Jesus even being with the sinners of that day. You read Luke 15 too, the Bible says the Pharisees and scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Those who were tax collectors, those who had been drunkards, Jesus sat down and had a meal with them because they needed the healing that only he could bring. But these guys, they're angry about it. They don't like that Jesus is reaching the people that they despised. They wanted Jesus to be stopped and they'll do whatever it takes to see that through. But little did they know, they can't stop this event. They can't stop this glorious procession, which leads us to let her be here. We see the requests of the Pharisees, but I love the response of Jesus. Look at the response of Jesus in this text. When I read about the interactions between Jesus and the Pharisees, I I just love it. He doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't pull any punches. I mean, he calls them vipers and and serpents, and all sorts of things, hypocrites, never pulls any punches. And he always wins those conversations. They're always left silent. They don't know what to say about it, right? He leaves them speechless. And now he responds to them with great authority and clarity. In Luke chapter 19, 
They said, teacher, rebuke your disciples, but notice his answers. He answered and said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The very stones would cry out. Now, now just ponder that for a moment. The stones would cry out. Now, interestingly, John the Baptist gave a similar response to those religious leaders when they came to him, when he was baptizing in Jordan. If you read Matthew 3 and verse 9, we, say, we read of John the Baptist. He, he told them, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. You know what this means? God didn't need them to accomplish his purposes. And that's humbling for me because I realize God doesn't have to have me to accomplish his purposes either. But I am tremendously blessed and you are tremendously blessed that God still chooses to use us in his purposes. You understand, he, he doesn't have to use us at all. The greatest privilege of the Christian life is to be used of God. That he uses you as a light, as a beacon of the gospel. No matter what your vocation is or where you are in your life, you are a vessel to be used of God. He doesn't have to, but he chooses to use you. Now, you, you see what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, when he says, if these should hold their peace, then the rocks would cry out, the stones would cry out. He's showing them that there is nothing that will stop this procession from giving him the glory and honor that is rightfully his. This event was prophesied, written down, pinned. Pinned by the immutable inspiration of the Almighty God. But let's just brainstorm for a moment. Let's ponder. Let's say for a moment that all the people immediately ceased their praise. They stopped like the Pharisees said. What would happen? Jesus said the stones would cry out. Imagine that for a moment. It all goes silent and then the rocks which to, to the attention of the Pharisees? Maybe? I say no. You know what they'd have said? You're just doing that by the power of the devil. They were hardened and blind. Didn't matter what power brought this forth. But imagine these rocks speaking. You ever heard a rock talk? I haven't. I hope you haven't. <laughs> if you have, you might need to see somebody. Just, just saying. Rocks don't speak. But the point here is that Jesus, he can make a rock talk if he wanted to. He can make that donkey he's riding. In fact, he did that in the Old Testament with Balaam. The donkey started talking. The donkey started talking in the book of Numbers. Do you know why he could do that and why he would do that? Because of who Jesus is. He is the king of glory. He is the creator of heaven and earth. And all of creation bows to its maker. Bows to its maker. How much more should we who are made in His image bow to His Maker? Rocks weren't made in the image of God. Donkeys weren't made in the image of God. Trees weren't made in the image of God. Only one part of creation was made in the image of God, and that's you and I, humanity. You see, Christ is the sovereign Lord over all. He is worthy 
of the greatest praise and adoration that could possibly be given him. As the psalmist said in Psalm 150 in verse 6, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. What if that was reversed? Let everything that praises the Lord have breath. How many would be breathing? The scene in Revelation gives further worth of our King and Creator. Revelation 4.11 The saints cry out, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. By your will they existed and were created. See, the Pharisees really don't have a clue what they're asking. And Jesus sets them straight. They didn't see Jesus for who He was. They willfully refused to acknowledge what was plain before them regarding who he was. And instead, with great deceit and devilish action, they will seek his death in just a few days, and they will be successful in that. But only because it's actually Christ being successful in his mission. Their prejudice would soon turn to persecution. That brings me to number three this morning. I want you to see the perception by the Messiah. What's, this, what's Jesus' view with all of, all of this? What's Jesus' viewpoint? We see the viewpoint of the Pharisees. We see the viewpoint of the people all around Jerusalem in that time. But what's what's Jesus' viewpoint? What's His perception? Two things. Jesus knew of the coming rejection of Him. He's not... It's not like all this praise is blinding Him. He knows exactly what's about to happen. Although the city welcomes Jesus and rejoices at His arrival, not all of them who are praising Him in this moment truly knew Jesus for who He actually was. They have this idea of what they want Him to be, but they don't know Him for what He's actually doing. They wanted Him to be their King that would free them from Rome and establish the kingdom like it was under David many years ago. But when it becomes evident that Jesus is not going to do that, guess what happens? Those same people who shout Hosanna in the highest would later shout crucify Him. They turn on Jesus. They turn on Him. And Jesus knows this. He knew this early in His ministry. John chapter 2 is very insightful for us. John 2 verse 23 through 24. The Bible tells us now when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in His name when they saw the signs he was doing. But notice the last part of the statement. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew all people. Jesus knew who the ones who believed on him, who were only looking to him for what he could do or what he would give them, rather than who he actually was. And this is, a, this is a point of consideration for all of us. Do not think that Jesus does not know you. He knows if you are just following the Christian crowd or whether you actually do know Him. Because there are many among the Christian crowd who follow the Christian crowd. They blend in with the Christians. But they do not actually know Him in their heart. They've not been born They've not possessed true faith in Christ. What does Jesus know of you today? 
What does He know of you? Does He know that you are solely committed to Him, that He alone is your Savior? You don't just look for Him as a get-out-of-hell-free card or, or one who can help you through a hard time, but you love and know Jesus for who He is. One of the most terrifying passages in all of Scripture is in Matthew 7, where Jesus says to many on that final day of judgment, those who will profess that they had done many mighty works in Jesus' name, many different things in His name, He says to them, Depart from Me, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. That is something to consider. Because that's what you see in this particular text. Jesus knows that many of those who are praising Him are going to persecute Him. As John rightly said in John 1.11, He came to His own people and they did not receive Him. Now, His reaction, His perception is truly detailed out as you read Luke's account in verse 41 through verse 44. I want you to read this with me. Luke 19. He comes into the city, but He's coming approaching the city, but notice this. When he drew near and saw the city, what's he do? He wept over it. He wept over it. Isn't, isn't this supposed to, isn't this a, a joyous, happy occasion, right? Hosanna to the Son of David. But as he approaches the city, what do we see? He weeps over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Why does Jesus weep? You imagine the Savior weeping. This shows us His, his true humanity, right? Uh, we, we see Him weeping at Lazarus' tomb, right? Jesus wept. But here we see Him weeping as He comes to Jerusalem. He's, he's got tears flowing out of His eyes. He's genuinely crying and weeping over this. It's because He knows their hearts. How they will reject Him. They're going to do to him what they have done to all the prophets who have come before them. him. Matthew 23, 37. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. You were not. You see, this rejection was coming in just a few days. It would be a dark and dreadful moment in Israel's history, but at the same time, it would be the most glorious transaction that ever happens in history because it would be the redemption of His people. Which brings me to letter B, and lastly, Jesus knew not only of the coming rejection of Him, but Jesus knew of the coming redemption through Him. Redemption through Him. See, Jesus told His disciples many times beforehand about what was going to happen. Mark 9.31 is just one example where He's teaching them and says, 
the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Now, would this death be just another travesty with no meaning? Would Jesus die as any other tragic death? Not at all. This, friend, though it looks dark and terrible, is the way in which redemption would be accomplished. Just a few days after this great entry of the Messiah, on the eve of his betrayal, he instituted what's called the Lord's Supper, an ordinance in the church. And I'm going to read this in Matthew 26. You read it with me. Go with me to Matthew's account. Matthew 26, verse 28 through 20, 26 through 28. Because this shows us what it's all about. It's a memorial order, ordinance of his redemptive work. The Bible says, now as they were eating, they're taking the Passover. Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink ye all of it. Drink, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. You understand what Jesus is communicating to them? His body and his blood that would be given in death on the cross are poured out or many, for the forgiveness of sins. Friend, this is what Holy Week, what Passion Week is all about. This week is what this is all about. It is about redemption. It is about salvation. The work of redemption in Christ is the great and glorious thread that is woven through all of Scripture and history. This is the pinnacle of history, the pinnacle of the Scriptures. This is what it is all about. It is the redemption of sinners from their sins so that they can be free from eternal judgment and be granted eternal life. And this is only possible because of this one man, the God-man. His death on the cross for sinners. His resurrection from the grave, conquering death. This is why He came. As Paul rightly said in Ephesians 1, 7, in Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. This is why He came into Jerusalem that day. This is why he set his face steadfastly. There was nothing that was going to pull him away from going to Jerusalem. Because he knew going there this time, he would die and redeem his people. And you understand that though he got great praise entering the city, the praise he receives as accomplishing redemption is far greater. So the triumphal entry of Christ brings us to consider a few things for ourselves that I ask us this morning as we close. Number one, I ask all of us, do you see Christ for who He truly is? Not who you want Him to be, 
not who others in the world might say him to be. But do you see Christ for who he actually is, as revealed in the scriptures? Number two, have you believed on Christ alone as your own personal Savior? Not asking if you've joined a church. Not asking if you've been baptized. Not asking if you think you're a decent person. Because every person in that category still faces the judgment of God. I'm asking, do you know Christ by faith alone in your heart? You are desperate and hopeless without Him alone. And lastly, I ask us this morning, if you can say yes to all those other questions, do you worship and praise Him as the glorious Lord and King that He actually is? Do you worship and praise Him for who He is today? May we as God's people Reflect today and through this week on the passion of Christ. On what Jesus came into the world to do for us. Read the gospel accounts of it. Meditate, fill your soul with what he did for you. And rejoice as we come upon the glorious resurrection day that we'll celebrate next week. Let's stand to our feet as we prepare for a closing song. Father, we bow before you this morning and thank you for this wonderful text of Scripture details this triumphant entry of Christ into Jerusalem. The fulfillment of prophecy that we see with it. Who Christ is. So much can be gathered from it, Lord. But one thing we know is that it is part of the bigger picture of what's happening that week. Lord, we could never thank you or praise you enough for the redemption that Christ has given to us. And it's my prayer, Father, that that truth of our salvation would be renewed in our hearts and minds. It's so easy just to go along in life and and we don't think much about what Christ has done. Father, may this week bring revival to our hearts about the gospel, about what Jesus has done for us personally. Bless this time as we close in a song. And I pray, Lord, that your word would minister to the hearts of those who've heard it here today. In Jesus' name, amen.